Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Nevins, an Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode CCXVIII, Martial on the Emperors. Martial was a Roman poet primarily writing during the reign of Domitian, and while he's known for his commentary on Roman life, his takedowns, his insults and vulgarity, in this episode we look at how he toes the careful line of praising the Emperor. That's right, we managed to record an entire episode on Martial without a language disclaimer. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Martial was a Roman Spanish poet who was born around 40 CE. He's writing, well, he probably started writing under Nero, but primarily everything we have published by him comes from the Flavian period. Mm. So his earliest book is under the Emperor Titus in 80 CE. And he's writing epigram, which is very short, snappy poems, can be as short as two lines, often very jokey, sometimes very obscene, seem to give us insights into more daily life. You know, it's often been compared to satire, which is a, a discrete genre in for Rome, so we can't call it satire as such, but it touches on what we would think of as satirical material. Yeah. And he often in his poems talks about dining and sex and everyday life. But we should beware really about thinking this gives us that much insight into ordinary people because uh, as a poet, he came from the top tier of Rome. And really, this is an elite man's view of everyday life. Yeah, so he wrote what he knew. But how was it writing under the Flavian emperors? Were they a particularly patient and receptive (laughs) bunch when it came to authorship that could be seen as criticism? No, (laughs) I would say, in a word. That wasn't a leading question on my part, was it? (laughs) I would say no emperor is, but some are less so than others. Certainly under Domitian, the last of the Flavian emperors, who's in charge from 81, there is what is seen as this kind of flourishing of the arts. He's keen to be a patron of the arts, very much like Nero and Augustus had been. But like both of those emperors and indeed others, there are limits to what you can say. So, you know, Augustus held book burnings, Nero was thin-skinned, and Domitian is certainly portrayed as even more so. Mm. So there's a lot of censoriousness, and under Domitian, and this is not just the case with Marshall, but other poets writing during his reign, most notably Statius, we get what we would regard as really toadying flattery, which seems to indicate that this is what Domitian needed this has made this poetry really difficult to assess in the past. Like It's sort of been dismissed as just pure flattery. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Marshall, which we can't say about Statius, his contemporary, is that we get Marshall's writing about and indeed addressed to Domitian during Domitian's life and then about Domitian after he dies. But Statius died in the same year, so we don't get that differentiation. Okay. And, you know, perhaps most famously, the historian Tacitus writes about how difficult it was to write under Domitian, how you were constrained. He particularly wants to write history and biography, and he can't write it because you can't write about great men as he sees it under Domitian because he'll get jealous, he'll get suspicious, he'll see it as a critique of him. He's paranoid. He's portrayed as paranoid in other writings. So... If we are to believe the other secondary sources, Domitian's particularly prickly, and this is a very difficult time to be writing directly about the emperors or about power. Mm. But Marshall wasn't just writing under Domitian, so we do get to see his view on different emperors and 
I guess, how his topic might, you know, loosen up and become a bit more freer in what he's addressing under different emperors. Is that the case? Certainly that's the way he portrays it. So his earliest book of poetry is published under Titus and it's specifically about the opening of the Colosseum and how wonderful the killing in the Colosseum is and what great building it is. Mm. Then the vast majority of his poetry, it's a bit complicated with the book numbers, but books 13 and 14, which are earlier than the other books, weird, but we won't be talking about them too much anyway. And books 1 to 10 were done under Domitian and 10 was re-released after Domitian was murdered. And then 11 and 12 are under Nerva and Trajan. Yeah. So we do get a vast span of Roman rule with Marshall writing during that period and sometimes about them. Yeah. Shall we start with Titus? Was he approving of Titus? Well, he loves the Colosseum. I mean, he wrote a whole book about it. (laughs) He presents it as this great marker of Rome's power and bringing Rome back to itself. This is something we're going to see, not just with Titus at all, but with the way he talks about all the emperors. There's this great vague past that was wonderful. And this emperor is bringing us back to that greatness. Mm. I mean, you could make contemporary parallels with certain countries. Making places great again. Yeah, exactly. So on poem two in the book on the spectacles, as it's called the one on the Flavian Amphitheatre, he says, Rome has been restored to herself and under your rule, Caesar, i.e. Titus, the joys that belong to a master now belong to the people. So he's praising Titus's rule. He's praising this great construction And he's saying this takes us back to a former great period. And he's specifically referring there, not really so much to the remote past, but before Nero, I suppose, because what formerly belonged to a master is referring to Nero, Mm -hmm. i.e. part of the golden house that Nero built for supposedly just for himself. It was the lake. Those literal grounds that the Colosseum is now on. Yeah. Yeah. So that got drained and then the, the, the amphitheater was built on that. So now it's a place for the people, not just a personal house. So there's a lot of praise for how great Titus is in that book. And he continues into Domitian's reign. So he continues to talk about, as we'll see, Domitian's military success. He compares him to Jupiter continually. He praises him as a ruler who is returning us to ourselves again. Mm. So how does Marshall treat Domitian in his early books of the epigrams, because often in them he is addressing the emperor directly. Mm. I think occasionally he's dedicating the entire volume Mm. and using that dedication as an opportunity, I guess, to try and get the emperor's attention and get his favour. So some of the books are addressed to him, as we'll see. He talks about his book like it's a person, a child or a slave that he's presenting to the world or sending to the world. And in the first book, the book that we call book one, he talks about it early on being something that the emperor might look at. He probably won't. So there's a lot of self-deprecation here. Mm. Like, you know, I know you're too busy and high up to be bothered about my kind of stuff. But book one, poem four, he says, Caesar... Again, the emperor, I Domitian. If you happen to light upon my little books, put aside the frown that rules the world. The frown that rules the world is a reference to Jupiter. Right? Okay. Jupiter frowns and the world moves kind of thing. Even the triumphs of emperors are wont to tolerate jests. So even though you do serious stuff, you need a few jokes now and again. And a warlord is not ashamed to be a matter for a quip. So 
even if I make a joke of you. It's like he's getting yeah, it in yeah, there yeah. early. Yeah, yeah, Please yeah. don't be offended if, if I make a little joke. Nice. I like the self-deprecating kind of terms. I don't know if that's just the translation, though. So a quip is how he's referring to his work. He calls his book his little book, reducing and saying, you know, this is something you can ignore. You know, it's just a, just a, a little bit of fun. And that is sort of a generic trope. He calls it a libellus, which is the diminutive form of Liber book. Mm. This is a reference, don't want to get too technical, but Catullus had done this too. In both cases, it's entirely self-effacing, but you know what? It's kind of bigging himself up at the same time. Oh, it's just a little book. But it's, <laughs> Catullus says his book is highly polished and Marshall thinks the same. They're short, but they're perfect, is the idea. Wow, okay, so, given the content, sure. Yeah. And look, <laughs> he says, he talks about, put aside the frown, yeah, it's the supercilious look. The word in Latin is actually superculium, the lordly look of the earth. So he uses the word dominus is where I'm struggling to get to there. Mm. So dominus is kind of entering the vocabulary about Domitian here. And, you know, previously in that poem about Titus, he said what used to belong to a dominus, i.e. Nero, now belongs to the people. Yeah. So now this is becoming the norm of a way to praise the emperor in Marshall's poetry. And you pointed out that the translation used jests and quips, and the Latin uses jocus, which is joke, joke. jokey. Yep. Yeah. And it uh, doesn't actually specifically have another word. It just says uh, suitable material. They're kind of filling in there because you have to in English. But yeah, the idea that these little jokes might not be your thing normally, but you know, you need a bit of respite and it's not too disgraceful. He says in that same poem, and this again is a reference to what Catullus and indeed Ovid did, my page is wanton, but my life is virtuous. So please don't assume that I'm like my jokes, <laughs> my, my material. I, I've got a perfectly clean life. And this is particularly important under Domitian because he will increasingly try and bring back, and some would say, be more hardline those social policies that Augustus had brought in to basically clean up the Roman elites in particular, mm -hmm. you know, those laws against adultery and so on. Yes. Okay. So it's really important that Marshall not be in the frame for those kind of laws. He also calls him ducem, so dux, that's the what's translated as warlord, which is Okay, but, you know, you could translate it other ways. It means leader, mm. specifically military leader. So he's emphasizing Domitian's military achievements there. Later authors would be very snippy about those. Tacitus says, oh, you know, he pretended there were triumphs. But, you know, he says of the Germans in his Germania that they're more triumphed over than defeated. Yeah. And he yeah. really means Domitian there. Well, I wonder if Marshall's being a bit tongue-in-cheek by using that term as well. Dukes. Yeah. Mm, you can do some reading between the lines. I'm not so sure I'd do it so much here, but yeah, there are places where we can have a look at that. But, you know, mostly saying here, please don't hurt me, I think. Mm. You know, and you might read it. I don't really think you will because it's too low down for you. And to be honest, I can see him thinking I might be better off if you don't in some ways. I kind of want the patronage, but I don't want the bad attention that might come with it. Mm. And indeed, the next poem, 1-5... He talks as if the emperor is replying to his little, you know, 
please take my jokes for what they are. So, so here's a suggested response you could have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of a put down of Marshall, yeah. but, you know, not be off with your head kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just a two-liner, classic Marshall. So this is kind of bold, putting words into Domitian's mouth. I give you a sea fight, you give me epigrams. Methinks you want to be in the water with your book, Marcus, i.e. Marshall. Mm. He's put on what's called a naumachia, which is complicated logistically to flood the arena and put on a sea battle. And in exchange, Marshall's just given him these tiddly little poems. It's not a good exchange. Into the water with you. Into the with your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did he spend any of his early epigrams comparing Domitian to the earlier emperors? There are poems that talk about both Domitian and Titus. A mm. uh, good example, and it's about his military achievements, which seems to be important for Marshall to mention. This is book two, poem two, which seems to have been published at the same time as book one, so around 86. And he starts off by talking about great Republican military heroes of Rome. Crete gave a great name, Africa a greater, born by Victorious Scipio and by Metellus. So both famous in mid and late Republic. Germany bestowed a nobler when the Rhine was subjugated. So this is the title Germanicus that was given to Domitian. You were worthy of this name, Caesar, even as a boy. Now, this is a reference to the Germanicus name wasn't taken by Domitian until 84 when he's emperor and he's not a boy. Mm. But he had been part of an expedition there in 70 under his father because his father and brother at the time were doing what he goes on to talk about. Your brother won Edumian triumphs, that means in Jerusalem, along with your father. But the laurel given for the chatty, i.e. the Germans, is all yours. Okay. So I guess the comparison there is the brother and the father were in it together in Jerusalem. Vespasian actually returned to become emperor and Titus was left there to finish off Jerusalem. Yeah. But you did Germany all by yourself. And the chatty are tough. They're tough Germanic peoples. Yeah. I was initially thinking that, you know, he's putting Domitian down by saying, you know, the name Germanicus is one that you earned when you were a child. Mm. What you did was nothing special, whereas your brother was over in Jerusalem, you know, really earning his title. Mm. But now I've completely come around <laughs> because it could also be read as saying, this is something you did independently. Mm. You didn't need your father's help to go and deal with the chatty. Yeah, well, I mean, the poem ends, actually, the English translation does this too. It can't always in translation, but tota tua est, all yours is. Mm. So it really emphasizes that part. I have to say, though, through talking to you about it, I think you might have a point about just the pointing out while you were a boy. Yeah, and it makes me yeah. think of the way some people read texts like even the Aeneid with Augustus that, you know, talking about how he promotes the young members of his family could be seen and probably was read by some crusty old people in the Senate as, you know, these kids are becoming consuls. Yeah, Not meant yeah. to happen like that. <laughs> so I think there's potential there for the even as a boy to seem a bit weird. I mean, he uses the word pure. It's it's a young boy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I like that, that he's, he's hedging his bets so much <laughs> that it can be interpreted either way. So. Well, certainly the reader can choose to. Just as long as Domitian interprets it the right mm -hmm. way, whichever that may be. <laughs> well, Marshall doesn't, just spoiler alert, he doesn't get into trouble under Domitian. So whatever he does, however fragile Domitian's ego is, mm. then he seems to get away with it. Yes. So does he go into outright flattery then? 
There are other poems in book two where he specifically refers to Domitian's policy of reviving and being strict about those Augustan laws about marriage. Mm. So he talks a lot about the right of three children. Sometimes he talks about people kind of trying to claim that right in underhand ways. So the right of three children is you get certain liberties and freedoms. For women, it's quite important because you get freed from the paterfamilias, the man of the household, if you've had three children. Yes. And it's four if you're a freed woman. But also it liberates you from certain taxes and duties. So it's a baby bonus. Yeah. So (laughs) book 291, he says, Caesar, the world's sure salvation. Now here we get into the kind of terminology that I think it's quite hard for me to read anyway without thinking, oh, Marshall, come Mm. on, did you really need to do this? Because he continues, glory of the earth, whose safety is our assurance that the great gods exist. If my poems, so often collected in hasty little volumes, there's the self-deprecation and he uses libellis again, mm. have detained your eyes, permit in semblance what fortune forbids in fact, right, so pretend I've got three kids, that I may be taken for the father of three children. If I have displeased, let this be my consolation. This is my reward if I have pleased. Mm. Poem 92, he actually says, the right of three children he gave me at my petition. So he asked Domitian for it and he was given it. He who alone had the power as a reward for my poetry. Ah, Which is interesting if true. That sounds like Domitian might have been a fan. Mm. Goodbye, wife. Our Lord's gift should not be wasted. Whoa. (laughs) Now, I I have to say, most scholars of Marshall think the wife is fictitious. Yeah. They think that he wasn't married even, which would be surprising for a Roman, but possible. Mm. So he got the right of three children without having the three kids. Yeah, I don't even know if we can believe that this happened Mm. or if he's just claiming it, given that a lot of people think the wife is fictitious. I think it's a very flippant end to the poem. He's got to make a joke of everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much everything. (laughs) So apparently he did get it. At least he says so here. It's almost the very last poems in book two. We've said that there's a couple of books that he dedicated in particular to the emperor, and these are books five and eight. So in those volumes, he's definitely hoping that the emperor is going to read it. Does that colour the content? I think all of the books under Domitian are coloured by the fact that Domitian's in charge, but there's a particular concentration on Domitian in books five and eight. It's pointed out to us by the fact that they're dedicated to him. So book five, the first poem is, this I send you, Caesar. I'm sending you this book. Yeah. And book eight, he's got a prose introduction that says it's dedicated to Domitian. But I, I like the poem one of book five. This I send you, Caesar, whether you tarry on, actually, says Palladian Alba's hills, which is a very grand way of talking about Rome, Mm. viewing trivia on the one hand and Thetis on the other. It's very high flown for Marshall in particular. And he keeps mentioning, you know, all of these Trojan references. The Palladian is the statue of Minerva that comes from Troy. Later on in that poem, he mentions Aeneas and, you know, wherever you are, wherever you've gone around an Italy that's sort of dotted with all of these Trojan place names, or supposedly Trojan place names. Mm. And he says, oh, blessed protector and savior of the world, whose safety assures us of Jove's gratitude. So again, this this idea that Domitian being in charge because he's so pious means that the gods are going to look kindly on us. So, you know, he's moral, he does his religious duties, he's really foregrounding all of this. And again, he's being self-deprecating though, only accept it, so please accept the book. 
I shall believe you have read it and proudly enjoy a Gallic credulity, which means the Gauls are known for believing things that aren't true. So I'll believe it, although I know you probably won't because it's so trivial. He's still on that self-deprecation, but still putting himself in front of the emperor and putting the whole book in front of the emperor. We've got this obsequiousness, and it does run through book five. For example, in poem six, he calls Domitian Jove, actually calls him Jove, not just says Jupiter will be kind to us because you're there. And in those early poems of book five, he's obsessed with his book getting into the palace. He continues on that line. So he really does want to please Domitian here, and he's not kind of covering it up. Yeah, because I'm sort of like, if I'm going to get one of my works before the emperor, I want this to be that one. Yeah. I think the one that shows us really where he's going with Domitian is poem 19, if I'm going to point to just one, because, again, he returns to Domitian's military achievements, which I think it was really important for Domitian to be able to display, partly because he comes from a line of two renowned military emperors, Mm -hmm. Vespasian and Titus, have that reputation. Certainly later writers would see it as not great under Domitian, or they portray it like that. But Marshall says, no epochs can be thought superior to your times, that you have deserved triumphs. He says that Rome looks great in this poem. When did the gods of the Palatine merit more? Under what leader was Mars's Rome, so Mars the god of war, more beautiful and great? So it's both we are militarily great and Rome is looking fantastic. All right, you've built a great Rome. It's very Augustan kind of praise, really. Mm. Very typical of the way Augustus wanted his rule to be seen. And this is a great line. Under what prince... Um, I'm just looking at the word, it's princeps. So prince is a bit of a dodgy translation there. It means first man, right? Leader. Under what leader, I'd say, did liberty so flourish? So, (laughs) yeah, given what is later said about Domitian, that does seem like a toadying line. Or maybe you're meant to read under it and say, liberty, Domitian, when he's bringing in all these censorious laws. Considering Mm. he's put instructions on how to get that book into the palace, (laughs) (laughs) I'd use those words too, maybe. Mm. Yeah. He's after patronage here, it seems like, in this poem. And he ends it with... All this while Germanicus, so giving him that title that refers to German triumphs, you have been smiling in silent mockery because I give you advice to my own advantage. I, I want you as a patron. Oh, I know you, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's fine if you yeah. don't. We're all in on the joke. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How does uh, book eight change it up or does it use the same sort of language and terms? And If you're wondering... Book five is about 89, if you're following along with the chronology, and book eight about 93. So we're in kind of mid-Domitian here. Okay. We, we know what we're dealing with if we're living under Domitian. So so book five didn't get into the palace, I'm taking <laughs> <laughs> that as meaning, and here's the second crack. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, or maybe it worked so well that he does it again at the beginning of book eight. Now, this is a long prose pre- preface. I won't read all of it, but it is addressed. I love this, uh, like the beginning of a letter. This is how you'd address a letter to somebody to the emperor Domitianus Caesar, Caesar, Augustus Germanicus Dacicus, Dacian, Dacian, Valerius Martialis sends greetings. (laughs) (laughs) And again, he says, ah, all my little books, little books, Lord, to which you have given fame. So he claims that at least, which is to say life. Mm. So I only live through my books are your petitioners. So they're begging you for stuff. And will be read, I suppose, for that reason. People are only reading them because you have shone the light of your smile on them. 
Um, but this one, entitled The Eighth of My Works, enjoys more frequent opportunities of showing its devotion. I'm going to be really flattering here. <laughs> However, from time to time, I have tried to vary the same by some mixture of jest. Let every line heap its praises upon your celestial modesty. <laughs> praises which might more easily weary you than satiate us. Okay, okay. So there's going to be some jokes in here. Just be aware. But I know that's because you'll just get sick of my flattery. Yeah, I'm flattering to a fault. Yeah. Yeah. He says it's not going to be as wanton as is the custom for epigram, so less smart than usual, because this <laughs> is dedicated to you. Since the greater and better part of the book is bound up with the majesty of your sacred name, let it re remember that only persons purified by religious lustration should approach temples. Maybe my book won't go into the temples, but mostly it's going to be about how brilliant you are. Okay. Yeah. And indeed, poem one, book about to enter the laurel dwelling of our Lord. Learn to speak more chastely with modest utterance. So by now, it's pretty clear Domitian's not going to put up with uh, people having immodest lives. I mean, it's been clear for a while. Mm. Then my favorite bit, nude Venus, get away. <laughs> this little book is not yours. Come to me, you, Caesar's palace, i.e. Minerva, a virgin goddess, Domitian's patroness, mm. Minerva. So, you know, it continues pretty much like that book eight. Domitian's victories are referred to throughout. He'd just come back from fighting the Sarmatians in Dacia, so hence Dacicus. And we get a lot of references to the victories there. I don't think I can read them all because it's quite sickening in the end. <laughs> uh, and uh, we've got lots about making offerings at altars to Domitian. And the one I do want to point to is poem eight. There's a lot in this book about the beginning of the year because Domitian had just come back. And so there's a lot of talk about Janus, Janus being in charge of the kind of rituals that are going on, which is fair enough, as if to point out this early part of the year is really important to Domitian and his glory mm. and the ceremonies for the emperor. But in poem eight, he's got Domitian as Deus, God. In your month, Janus, the Latian city saw its returning God. So it's addressed to the god Janus, but it's saying that the god returns and the god there is Domitian. That's an important move. Okay. Because that's kind of been taboo for Romans to refer to living people as gods. Yeah. But it's starting okay. to happen. Fine with Domitian, even in a book that's meant to be a bit lighter, honestly. Mm, but he said, you know, it's mostly going to be praise of you. There might be the odd poem. Mm. Don't expect every single poem to be about you, which makes me think if you address a book to Domitian, then maybe he would expect that. Yeah. Oh, look, there's one in here that's about a dinner that's not about me. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> so books five and eight aside, how is he addressing Domitian? Is there anything that would offer a bit more insight that could be taken as criticism or strange or... You know, this is the emperor that we live under. Commentary. <laughs> yeah, well, look, there's a very strict line that Marshall has to walk if he's going to talk about one aspect of Domitian's life at all. Domitian has th this eunuch in his household called Aerenus, which means of the springtime. Mm. And he's this beautiful boy who's been castrated. And this is strange. And we have to think of this in cultural terms, which is not to say it was fine then, because it wasn't. Because, in fact, Domitian brought in a law which Marshall celebrates, which banned the castration of boys. Okay. All right, as something immoral. And yet he had a eunuch in his house. You know, he treated as a sex slave. By bringing this up, Marshall is going, okay, this is a bit hypocritical. Well, potentially, I guess you could say 
potentially he could not bring it up at all. Mm. But Statius, that other Domitianic poet I talked about, he has whole poems dedicated to Aerinus. So it, it is possible that it was considered you know, bad form never to bring him up. So what Statius and Marshall do is they praise the beauty of Aerinus. And Marshall does this in a series of poems all in book nine. You know, if you want to go trace them down, it's poems 11, 12, 13, 16, and 36. So poem 11, as an example, says, Name, the name is Aerinus, born together with violets and roses, by which is named the best part of the year, i.e. spring, which has the flavor of hybla and attic flowers, so they produce honey, and the fragrance of the proud bird's nest. So that's the phoenix. So, you know, he goes on like this, name sweeter than blessed nectar, by which Cybele's boy, who's the great goddess, her boy is Attis, and he's also castrated. And he who mixes the thunderer's cups, that's Ganymede, who Jupiter had stolen from Troy uh, to be the cupbearer of the gods, but also his boy sex slave, would be called. Very kind of flowery language, literally flowery. He's very careful about the way he talks about him. Interesting. Really, all the poems about Aerinus are, are like that. I'm reading between the lines, of course. I can't know. Uh, he talks about him in poem 16 as his master's favorite in all the palace, whose name means springtime. He again compares him to Ganymede, so he makes these mythical comparisons. He keeps it very careful. I, I don't see say. criticism in there, yeah. No, but, I mean, there are people who think just by mentioning him, there is that implied critique. Yeah. Because Marshall, in book six, poem two, he had celebrated the ban on castration of boys. Yeah. So he's doing the Domitianic line yeah. of saying this boy's beautiful, but look, isn't it great that you, you've banned this now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He's a very careful writer. <laughs> Indeed. I've just thrown these together, little books thing. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How does this compare and contrast then with, with later emperors? I know the bulk of his work is written under Domitian, but when he talks about the emperor during the reign of Nerva, I almost detect a sense of relief. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. His praise of Nerva seems to be genuine. Yes. So in book 11... This is very much post-Domitian's murder. He talks about Nerva in the second poem of the book, 11.2. He says, we are at liberty and under your rule, Nerva, rejoice. And he actually, I'm just going to quote directly from this one. Look, my verses shout, hurrah for the Saturnalia. Your austere readers learn jerky Santra, who seems to be a poet who is not very good, but, you know, towed the line of morality by heart. I'm not concerned with you. This book is mine. I think that's the really important line. Ister liber meus est. This book is mine. So finally I can be I myself. I can be myself. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So he's certainly giving us the impression that finally he's unleashed. And we're not being censored as much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. And he's, you know... Praying that Nerva lives long, uh, a couple of poems later. Oh, that's awkward. Saying, yeah, it won't happen, will it, because Nerva is relatively old when he comes to power. He's got the same nostalgia for the past, but now he's transferred it to Nerva, I would say, in less openly flattering tones. And again, this may be a strategy to imply, well, I don't need to do that anymore. Domitian needed this with you. It's more, I mean, there's still flattery. He says that Nerva is, you know, as just and wise as Numa, who's the second king of Rome, who's supposed to have laid down all kinds of institutions and was known for his justice. Yeah. All the great leaders of the Roman Republic would accept you as leader. 
i.e. Nerva, and he even mentions Cato, you know, Cato who died to protect the Republic and yeah, not have yeah. an emperor. He'd accept you. It would be fine. He's sort of saying you're a better ruler than Domitian. That's his praise. Yeah. To make it simple. I just want to mention by in case anyone was wondering between books nine and 11, book 10 had been quite awkward. It clearly had praised Domitian. And then it was edited and republished a couple of years later. With okay. no in there. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So we've got both versions, we though, don't. do we? No. We've got the edited the version. The other one is gone. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough in those first nine books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The praise of Nerva I see as genuine, though, because we do have references to Nerva while he was still consul in the earlier books, and mm. he's, he's quite praising of his mm-hmm. knowledge and his, his wisdom in those Lucky as well. Lucky to have done that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Greased the way a bit there. Nerva was also a poet. I don't think we have any of his poetry, but uh, Marshall praises that particularly. Whoever is acquainted with the verses of the learned Nero knows that Nerva is the Tibullus of our day. Yes. So he's saying he's like Tibullus, i.e. a really good poet. We do get an idea that Marshall's trying to negotiate Nerva and probably more Trajan's reigns a little bit, actually in that re-released book 10. So, for example, his terminology has changed. He knows now you don't call the emperor Dominus, you don't call him master, certainly not God. He refers to Trajan, this is in poem six, so early on in the re-released book 10, as leader, as dux, markedly not Dominus. Mm. And I think most famously later on in that book, poem 72, it starts, flatteries be gone. I don't need to do flattery of the emperor anymore. This is me now. This is my book. I can do what I want. Okay. (laughs) To sum up, I think we can say that flattery works when you're talking about the emperor because it saw him safely through the Domitian period. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of victims during the Domitianic period. I mean, primarily politicians. And it's not quite like with Nero, where we do have famously under Nero, Seneca and Lucan were forced to kill themselves. It was implied that they were part of a conspiracy. We don't get that with Domitian. Maybe the poets just aren't influential or important enough. I mean, Marshall, for all, he's part of the elite class. He is from Spain and maybe that just wasn't, you know, at the center of power enough. We don't know enough about Marshall to say. But he does protect himself. And I think it's implied that this kind of flattery would keep you safe under Domitian. But it's not true entirely that Marshall managed to read the room well enough, or maybe just all of that flattery of Domitian meant that he couldn't ride out the Nerva and Trajanic period. Nerva isn't around for very long. Maybe the previous praise of Nerva made it okay for him to stay there. But it's quite marked that around 100 CE, a couple of years into Trajan's reign, Marshall is back in Spain. Yeah. And he's sending his 12th book from Spain. And he writes in it that he misses the city, that he doesn't have the material to write about anymore because he's out in the sticks now. I talked earlier about how the book is personified and he's sending his little book back to Rome and hoping it'll be okay on the boat. It's quite cute. Uh, (laughs) So he's marking that he is no longer there in the metropolis at the heart of things. He doesn't say it, but it's assumed that he wasn't doing so well under Trajan. That was Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe and like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can find us on what is left of Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is... 
at Rome Podcast. This podcast has been recorded and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.